Hello and welcome to Voicebox, your weekly guide to singing and the best of the vocal music scene on public radio and podcast. I'm Chloe Veltman and it's great to be with you once again. Tonight's programme begins with a quiz. Who are the following singers and what do they all have in common besides fabulous voices and great commercial success? joined us. Welcome. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, Public Radio's weekly series about the human voice. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and at voicebox-media.org. So what do the singers whose voices we just heard, pop diva Adele, opera star Natalie Dessay and country singer Keith Urban all have in common? The answer is voice surgery. These three artists all underwent surgery on their vocal cords in recent years to help solve problems that would otherwise very likely have put an end to their musical careers. And they're not alone. The Who's Roger Daltrey, Paul Stanley of the metal band Kiss, pop singer John Mayer, R&B artist R. Kelly, opera singer Denise Graves and musical theatre Diane Julie Andrews are just a few more famous names to have undergone the knife for the sake of saving their voices. Now, the media tends to over-sensationalise these celebrity cases, focusing, because it makes good copy, on the singer's dramatic surgical processes and remarkable comebacks. But what isn't so thoroughly reported, and in fact what's usually ignored, is the delicate and intricate process of deep analysis, careful decision-making and holistic therapy leading up to and following any kind of surgical procedure on the singer's vocal cords, as well as how, more often than not, voice experts collaborate to prevent a patient from having to undergo surgery at all in the first place. So on tonight's show, we're going to set matters straight by dissecting the medical evaluation and treatment process for professional singers suffering from vocal problems. And we're lucky to have as our guides two expert guests who are based at the University of California, San Francisco's Voice and Swallowing Centre. Dr. Mark Corey is a laryngologist, that's a surgeon who treats disorders of voice, breathing and swallowing. And Mark's colleague, Sarah Schneider, a frequent guest on Voicebox, is a voice speech pathologist. Sarah provides vocal rehabilitation to patients with voice disorders, sort of like physical therapy for the voice. Greetings, Mark, and welcome back, Sarah. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Let's start by talking about Adele. It was the media attention surrounding this pop singer's vocal cord hemorrhage in October 2011, ensuing vocal surgery and dramatic stage comeback at the 2012 Grammy Awards that largely inspired tonight's topic of conversation. Mark and Sarah, let's briefly talk about what happened to Adele. What caused the vocal hemorrhage? Uh, uh, Voice use patterns. I mean, if we had to guess what was going on without actually knowing. Uh, She's probably singing too hard and in the presence of a lot of vocal demand. Mm -hmm. Okay. How common is this issue and does it often lead to a full-on hemorrhage? So it's not uncommon. Mm -hmm. I mean, the vocal folds, the human vocal folds can only take so much use and Mm -hmm. people who are professional voice users are required to use their voice to their fullest limit. It's just like the professional athlete who blows out a knee because he or she is running so hard to play a sport. Mm. You know, the knee can only take so much and these professional athletes or vocal athletes are pushing their vocal folds to the limits. Mm -hmm. So it can happen. 
Hmm. Okay. Um, how usual is it to operate on uh, this kind of patient? So it's not so usual to operate. We do see this a couple times a year in professional voice users, and frequently with voice therapy alone, if the lesion hasn't gotten too big, the hemorrhage itself can resolve. Hmm. And then, hopefully, if there's no underlying polyp or cyst under the hemorrhage, the problem would resolve itself and correct with more efficient voice use patterns. Okay. Well, people made a big deal about Adele coming back on stage and sounding better than ever. And to quote one, at least one media article I read, how common is it for vocal surgery to change the way a voice sounds? So, you know, if you listen to Adele's voice, in prior years, she sounded like she had a polyp or a nodule or something on her vocal fold that was stiffening one or both of the vocal folds, and that's why she always had a little bit of a rasp or yeah. a scratchiness to her voice, sort yeah. of a richness. Yeah. And so we could hear that in her voice, and actually, if you listen to her very early music, you hear it getting worse mm-hmm. over a series of years. Huh, interesting. And then, so given that, it wasn't so unusual that she would develop more problems from it. Uh-huh. Okay. And do, do you think the surgery was responsible for the change, though, that people heard after? The so su- it, her voice was clearer because of surgery and ah. the subsequent rehab that she went through. Oh, okay. I would say. Yeah. Oh, okay. So a combination of both. Mm-hmm. So, so surgery without proper rehab mm. doesn't do as well for the voice as surgery with the appropriate rehabilitation. It's just like you can't have a knee replacement without going through physical therapy because what would happen, the knee would freeze up. It would Mm -hmm. become stiff. You'd lose range of motion. So it's very critical whenever they operate on a knee that they put the patient in some sort of exercise program as immediately as the patient can stand it. And that's the same sort of thing that we do with voice surgery. When we do surgery on the vocal folds, we want to get the patient back to some sort of vocalization as soon as possible. A small amount of safe vocalization directed by a voice coach or a speech language pathologist who really understands voice, not just speech, but understands voice, so that they're certain that the patient is using their larynx and vocal folds as efficiently as possible. In the same way, if you have knee surgery, the day after surgery, as soon as you can tolerate the pain, the knee surgeon has you flexing or extending, straightening and bending the knee to certain degrees so that you don't lose range of motion so that it doesn't freeze up. And that's the same thing we want to go through with voice therapy, voice surgery, and then voice therapy, because it helps the tissue heal. Let's hear from Adele now. Chloe Veltman, and this is Voicebox, Public Radio's weekly series about the human voice. On tonight's show, I'm here in the studio with Dr. Mark Corey, a laryngologist, and Sarah Schneider, a voice speech pathologist. Both of my guests hail from the University of California, San Francisco's Voice and Swallowing Center. And we're talking about how medical experts evaluate and treat professional singers with voice problems. We've been focusing on the pop singer Adele's recent voice surgery and just heard the singer perform one of her best-known club anthems, Set Fire to the Rain. We were just talking now about how that song clearly comes from a time before she had the surgery and it compares quite differently to what we heard at the start of the show, um, her, her, that sort of big anthem, Someone Like You, mm-hmm. was after the surgery, right? Is there anything you want to say about the... No, no. After, I think it was closer it was to before. just before the surgery. So I think she's less raspy in the one we just heard oh, okay. than the one then we heard at the top of the show. Okay. Someone so like you. You can very clearly hear the difference mm-hmm. then. Hmm. So why was so much attention paid in the media to Adele's surgery, but practically no mention anywhere about the lengthy period of vocal recovery and rehab in the interim? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I sur- wish we knew. <laughs> surgery is always more exciting yeah. than physical rehabilitation. Doesn't make a good story then. No. Not as, not as fun. <laughs> what are the dangers of the kind of hyped-up media coverage that high-profile cases like Adele have been getting around their vocal surgery? Well, 
I think it's interesting because we've, as we see patients in the office, in the clinic, following all the media attention to this, they'll come in and say, oh, is this the same thing that Adele had? Or, <laughs> or do I need surgery like Adele? You know, so um, the danger is that people, they don't hear about the rehab process. Mm-hmm. So they think, oh, I have a voice problem. I need surgery. You mean so they think they can just come in, have a quick operation, and it will all be just fine. Mm-hmm. Quick fix. We had a young woman, in, well, not so young. She was about 45 in the mm-hmm. office the other day who just wanted a quick fix for 25 years of voice problems mm-hmm. created by the way she used her voice as a, as a high school and college athlete, as a young mother, as a young mother and coach of her children's mm-hmm. games. And so she was constantly overusing her voice and created problems. And because of stories like we heard on some popular singers, she thought she could come in and just get a quick surgical fix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the danger is that, you know, she could end up worse or if uh, the surgeon is swayed by the media attention, then he or she could offer her surgery too soon and Mm. create more of a problem. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think there's also a problem with the media hype in as much as it it, um, can make people also think that singers will never have vocal recovery you know they're they're having this big operation on their vocal cords and it will ruin them forever or something and I think this Mm. is the case with R. Kelly the R&B singer he got really fed up with the chatter and gossip surrounding the throat surgery that he had and he wrote a song in 2011 in which he vented his anger at the vocal surgery haters who told him he'd never be able to sing again Mm. the track which we're going to hear now is appropriately entitled Shut Up Now that I've got my voice back, let me start off by saying that I appreciate the fans around the world that had my back And I just want to thank God upstairs for keeping his hands on me And keeping all the doctors focused through my surgery Now, there's a couple of things I gotta get off my chest Some serious issues that I must address, so Well, let's just get right to it, people say that I was done Said there was no way this time he's gonna overcome and even before the doctors was done and I could awake, a tsunami of rumors had come to wipe my career away. After 22 years of a blessed career. The goal of voice therapy, the goal of voice surgery, is not to give the patient a perfect voice, but to help the patient find a voice that fits the genre of music they want to perform. And fits them. And fits their body. Mm-hmm. On Voicebox tonight, we're discussing voice surgery and rehabilitation. I'm Chloe Veltman, and if you aren't able to catch the show on air, no problem. Simply visit voicebox-media.org or iTunes to download our weekly podcasts for free. That was R. Kelly with Shut Up, a song that the R&B artist wrote in response to those around him who told him he'd never perform again after his vocal surgery in 2011. And that's uh, another problem, isn't it, with all the hype, um, people coming in and seeing you and and thinking they'll never recover from a voice Mm -hmm. problem. Yeah, it's sort of like, oh my gosh, I have vocal nodules and this very emotional response of, am I ever going to sing again? Mm. And yes, the answer is yes, you can we can help you recover. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And um, do people worry about even if they recover that they won't sound the same or sound as good? Yes. Yes. Quite a bit. And they, they worry about the stigmata of even having a, uh-huh. a lesion or something on their vocal folds and what it will do to their fan base or to the what people who hire them, to their promoters. All of a sudden, they're damaged goods. And so you never know... Uh, how that's going to be perceived by the public and how that will affect their career. So, Sarah and Mark, one thing that's becoming clear from our discussion so far is that surgery is absolutely not a quick fix for a vocal problem. So how do you go about deciding if a patient needs surgery or not? Well, we evaluate them together, generally, um, getting a thorough history and sort of finding out what led to the voice issue at hand and learning have they had an ongoing issue with voice problems, is this something new? And then we look at their vocal folds and and see what's happening. And maybe I can turn that to Mark. Yeah, so it's a definite team approach. Uh, the speech, the voice speech pathologist, Sarah, in this case, looks at the patient from a behavioral standpoint and sort of tries to figure out what she hears in their voice box, what she hears in their larynx, what mm-hmm. she sees in their voice box. How can she get them to change behaviors to maybe make that lesion or that change remodel into something healthier. 
And I sort of look at it the same way with her, with the ultimate idea of, well, if it doesn't remodel, can I surgically remove that? Mm-hmm. So it's a team approach, and mm-hmm. we try to explain that to the patient that ultimately the best surgery I can do is no surgery because <laughs> if they can learn how to change their vocal behaviors to make their vocal folds heal on their own, then I know they're safe mm. for the rest of their career mm-hmm. because what they pick up is an awareness of how they should use their voice, mm-hmm. how they should use their voice efficiently to produce a sound that's popular that people want to, want to hear. What are the main reasons, and we've touched on this briefly, but I think we should state it more thoroughly, what are the main reasons that professional singers end up coming to you in the first place for help? I think a lot of times it's sort of in an acute sort of stage when they'll say when they say I've been having problems I kind of pushed through to the end of whatever requirement they had and then they come to see us sort of like now what mm-hmm. or it's in a case where maybe they have a show coming up and they are losing their voice mm-hmm. yeah okay and and are pop and rock singers more susceptible to vocal problems than classical or say musical theater vocalists here in the western world or? so that really depends on schedule and, and mm-hmm. to, to simplify what sarah said it's because they've asked themselves to do too much too loudly too often uh-huh. <laughs> and so opera evolved in a manner of knowing and classically trained singers evolved and are trained in a manner of knowing when they've done too much. Mm. And they, they, they are provided with schedules, hopefully, that an opera performs on Thursday and Saturday or Friday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. And they do two, maybe four shows a week. The pop singers ask their voices to perform nightly for three to five nights straight without a break. Mm-hmm. There's no grace days or grace periods. So and the musical theater yeah. performers too, right? Yeah. Even worse, eight, shows a, eight shows a week. Yeah. And I think sometimes like within certain genres, like maybe in rock, there's sort of this sort of, I, it gives me grit in my voice and, mm-hmm. you know, and that's sometimes a good thing. Desirable. Right. Sure. But, but, and so there are people who can tolerate that grit mm-hmm. in their voice. Mm. And, and can do it on a regular basis. But it's always a matter of, of limiting the overall balancing. amount of balancing. Mm-hmm. And so classically trained singers, we know that if they over sing, they're going to damage their vocal folds, but mm-hmm. they're trained not to. Mm-hmm. It's not saying that classical music is innate, innately more healthy for the vocal folds than commercial music. Mm-hmm. Now, are there obvious forms of commercial music, such as screaming? <laughs> Or or uh, growling, growling that happens mm-hmm. quite a bit that is damaging to the vocal mm-hmm. folds, but the same now in more contemporary opera and more contemporary musical theater where people are really asked to to push their voice to and, the limit and scream, right. mm-hmm. you know, rock of ages, right? <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, rock rock musicals, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's really a matter mostly of amount and volume. I yeah. see. Okay, not genre. Um, but how about the demands on the professional singers? I mean, have they always been hard or is modern life leading to more of them, more of these people coming in to see medical experts for evaluation and treatment now than was the case in the past? I think there's just more awareness. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think. And, you know, so music evolved around a few venues. It evolved around the performance venue. And opera sort of evolved before we had amplification systems. Mm -hmm. And so opera evolved with a style that the singer had to take advantage of certain characteristics in their voice to get their voice to carry to the back of the audience. Mm -hmm. And cut through an orchestra. And that wasn't by pushing on the vocal folds as much as by the way they shaped their mouth. Right. Right. And then, then music evolved around traveling minstrels and bards who provided local entertainment. And that's sort of what has grown into the commercial music that mm-hmm. we hear today. Now, they didn't have to perform to large audiences. They performed to a small group. They would perform uh, the uh, Grand Old Opry started in the lobby of an insurance building in Nashville, Tennessee. They performed <laughs> in a small venue. Mm. So they didn't have to be loud. And then venues got larger, so they had to be louder. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what has created maybe some of the more problems today. But now they use amplification systems. Right. I was just having a discussion with a a singer about using the amplification system. And even within ear monitors, he's saying, I feel like I have to push past it. It's just part of my showmanship. And my sound person said, come out in the audience. Listen, we can hear you fine when you're not pushing. Mm -hmm. And he was like, oh. 
they can hear me. But he's like, I can't stop pushing. Okay. <laughs> it's part of his persona. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the excitement of the show. But right. in the same way, Broadway, uh, musical theater people have to dance and perform, and mm-hmm. that's very difficult to do at the same sure. time in a healthy manner. Yeah. You know. And then we have the opera singers. Who are wearing heavy costumes. Right. <laughs> but, you know, you have to sort of suspend disbelief for opera. Sure. And so if the acting... We're listening more to the music than, than the, the motion on the stage. Than, not emotion, than mm. the motion on the stage in opera specifically. So what percentage of patients that come through your doors end up having surgery? Roughly. I'll leave that to you. <laughs> 5%? That low. that low. So 95% roughly of the people who are coming to the Voice and Swallowing Centre at UCSF are purely going to have therapy. Or living, or choosing not to do anything, or choosing not to proceed just to come for the evaluation. But but that is part of therapy, getting mm-hmm. the patient to understand what's going on, mm-hmm. yeah. what has created the problem, and then either to change it or live with it. And it's because of the talent of someone like Sarah that I'm able to tell you that it's only five percent of my patients ending up needing surgery. Ah, um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's really the key to being a successful laryngologist is working with a speech or uh, voice speech language pathologist who appreciates what patients can be doing with their voice and their vocal technique and can enable them to get there, can help them get there with it. And what Sarah are the advantages of going the 100% therapy approach? Well, I mean, I think the one is that if there, that you have increased self-awareness, you can better be your own vocal advocate. You have better vocal, you can make more vocal choices, mm-hmm. I think, with the, when you learn more about your voice through the therapy process. Um, if there is surgery, there can be a better surgical outcome mm-hmm. uh, because, of the, because of, the, of the therapy, I think, in the hands of a good surgeon. And... Um, but we're purely talking about just therapy here. If there's ju- just therapy, I think the patient learns their voice, learns how to manage their voice and know what to do with their voice. Okay. But it's a very long process, isn't it? I mean, it's, or it can be, right? Can it, be. Things don't happen overnight. But, you know, so, what we see, we often see that patients who are going to make changes do so within the first six to 12 weeks. Yes. Oh, okay. So within, I would say within four sessions of therapy, which we do either weekly or every other week, we have a good idea if this person's going to be able to make some changes. So there's two reasons they may not be able to make those changes. Mm-hmm. One is that they just don't get what Sarah is asking them to do. Mm-hmm. Or a corollary to that is that they don't want to do it. Maybe they get it, but for some emotional reason, or maybe it doesn't give them the sound they think they need, mm. they don't do it. And the other is that the lesion is too firm and really will not remodel without surgery. But we find that in probably a small percentage of the patients. Yeah, agreed. Well, let's hear now from a famous vocalist who solved her voice problem through therapy alone. Canadian country singer Shania Twain, who underwent voice therapy to cure a condition called dysphonia, which brings about an impairment in the ability to produce voice sounds. Here's Shania now with I Ain't No Quitter. He drinks, he smokes, he cuts, he swears, he tells bad jokes, he rules, and he rides, he lives like fast, and he loves to fight. He's a loser, a loser, he calls me up when he's had too much, he's a schemer, a dreamer, but I tell him to change his ways, he just turns to me and says, Shania Twain with I Ain't No Quitter. You're tuned into Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman. Don't forget you can access our free podcasts, playlists and all kinds of other info about our series at voicebox-media.org. On this evening's Voice Box, we're discussing vocal surgery and vocal therapy with UCSF voice specialists Mark Corey and Sarah Schneider. We're learning that it's rather common for professional singers suffering from serious vocal problems to overcome them with therapy alone and leave surgery out of the equation altogether. Mark and Sarah, um, you can solve 
voice problems very frequently just with therapy. Is it possible to solve them with surgery alone or is surgery always combined with therapy? So voice problems that result because of voice overuse or uh, inefficient use or too loud use or too often use, I don't believe you can solve those with surgery alone because you can take them off and temporarily make the patient better. But if you let the patient go back to their same habits that created the lesion, it will be back. Aha. Okay. Well, that's very clear then. So, um, Sarah, how do you work with a patient to prepare them for the surgical process then? So, first and foremost, I we talk about what their vocal patterns and behaviors are and try to identify um, what makes their voice worse, what makes it better, help increase awareness of what makes it worse, like too much, too loud, too often, yelling, shouting, loud talking, um, certain types of singing. Maybe for some people it's belting or growling, but mm -hmm. it could just be inefficient mm -hmm. singing um, and speaking. Uh, always with singers, we focus on speaking and singing just mm -hmm. because they're two branches of the same tree. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as people develop some vocal efficiency, mm -hmm. then they're better prepared for surgery and what to expect following surgery. How long typically is the, prepara is the preparation process? How long does it take? I think it depends. It depends on what the lesion looks like. Um, how it's affecting vocal fold vibration and based on what the patient's patterns are. Mm -hmm. In some cases, we'll do a full course of therapy prior to de even deciding if, if uh, Dr. Corey is going to operate on them. If um, in some cases we see a lesion and we have low expectations, it's going to resolve with therapy and the patient is using their voice relatively efficiently. Mm -hmm. So we'll do a session or two of education mm -hmm. and, and practice preoperatively and mm -hmm. then... Okay. So, be in so it's not like they come through the door and you decide upon primary evaluation that you're definitely going to use surgery. Then. No, that's absolutely the case. We use something called serial examinations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We follow them. You never want to make the decision to do surgery on the basis of one exam. You can have mm -hmm. a suspicion that this lesion is going to probably need surgery, but never say never. I've been yeah. fooled That's true. over and again huh. in my career where someone will come in and I'll think it's a lesion that will get better that was caused by voice use patterns mm -hmm. and will probably get better but never go away completely without surgery and then it's they gone. come back yeah. a month later, it's gone. Uh -huh. And so we never say never. Some of the things that drives us are the patient demands. Yes. So do they need to be performing at a certain point in I time? See. And that's always, it's never good to be under the rod, under mm -hmm. a gun. Mm -hmm. And so we try to get the patients to realize that. And if we think it's a lesion that will go away with therapy alone and not need surgery, we'll ask them for six weeks because if, yeah. if, if it's, if they're going to be able to make a change through behavior, we're going to see some sort of response within the first six weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then if they've made a change, they're often better and they're encouraged to continue doing more. Yeah. And they'll say, oh, I'm learning to work with this voice. It's, I'm getting more consistency. Maybe not all of the complaints are resolved, mm -hmm. but they've learned to work with mm -hmm. what's happening. Oh, OK. And that, that's the best result because then, yeah. then they really have control then you've empowered them to mm -hmm. move forward. And I think that's a really important part of the therapy process is really saying, you have this here, let's learn to work with it and develop some consistency. If they've developed some consistency in their voice, they know how to work around this lesion and they're still not happy with their voice, then that's more of an indicator for surgery. Oh, I see. If they're not doing what we're asking them to do and they're not happy, then then we don't know, you know. Mm -hmm. And Can we want to avoid surgery in that yeah. situation because those are the patients who are likely to have the recurrence. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the patients who haven't made the changes, don't want to make the changes because they feel they need that certain voice use pattern which is not fitting with their body, mm. with their laryngeal, with their voice apparatus, and they're the ones who are going to be back and have repeat surgeries. Well, for those that do end up being operated on, Mark, what kinds of surgical techniques uh, are, you, are available today and how do you figure out which one to use on a particular patient? There are many different surgical techniques. They're all techniques. The goal of voice vocal fold surgery is to restore the normal anatomy and physiology 
appearance of the vocal fold tissue. And so I think to do that, as a surgeon, you have to have an appreciation of what the normal anatomy and, and histology of the vocal fold, the normal tissue should look like and behave like. Mm-hmm. And then you can use whatever techniques are. There's no magic technique. There's no magic wand. There's no magic bullet. There's no smart laser. Mm-hmm. You can use whatever technique you are comfortable with to try as a surgeon to try to restore that vocal fold tissue to its natural state. So, for example, give us some examples of, of the sorts of uh, so, surgical procedures. That there are, are, you know, some techniques that we've really worked on developing are things where we make small incisions into the vocal folds with a knife. You mm-hmm. could make it with a laser, but all lasers work by heating tissue. Mm-hmm. And when you heat tissue, you can get a slightly unpredictable response. So for most surgery for vocal fold lesions, I'll use just a knife, a very small one or two millimeter knife and make an incision into the vocal fold. Oh, we go through the front here? Where no, you know? we go through the mouth. So right we now. expose the patient's huh. uh, voice box by putting a tube in their mouth called a laryngoscope. Uh that holds the uh, tissues of the throat away from the vocal folds so that you can look directly at them with the microscope. And we operate under a microscope. And using anesthetic, I hope. (laughs) The patient's put totally to sleep. (laughs) Totally asleep, doesn't remember a thing and doesn't feel a thing. And then we make very small incisions on the vocal folds Uh and we dissect the tissue out that's abnormal, that's creating the problem. And we put as much of the normal tissue back into its original position as we possibly can. How long does a procedure take on average? Anywhere from 60 minutes to two and a half hours. Okay. Hmm. Sarah, once the surgery is completed, how and the patient wakes up, (laughs) how do you work with, with that patient to get him or her ready to sing again? So let's let's talk a little bit about voice rest uh-huh. and that uh, is part of the process. So after the uh, person wakes up from surgery, they're on one week of in our office in our hands. They're on mm-hmm. one week of complete voice rest. They, you mean in the they stay in the hospital? No, nope. no, no. They can go home. They're discharged the same day. Uh-huh. It's an outpatient surgery. Yeah. But then they're on complete voice rest. No, no talking. talking. No whispering. No laughing. No. No, nothing. <laughs> they just have to write. Writing or texting, uh-huh. you know, any anything that they can do to not talk. Uh-huh. Um, and they're on that for one week. They come back to see us. We look at the vocal folds and see how they're healing and take them off of a voice rest at that week and then begin the voice therapy part of things. So we'll get them talking about five minutes an hour during that first week and um, give them some easy um, airflow or resonant voice exercises to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say airflow or resonance, it's what they're feeling when they're making their voice that we're really focusing on, making mm-hmm. it easy and vibration in the mouth and not in the throat. Okay. And and how long does that process so take? So there's three weeks after the complete week of voice rest, there's uh-huh. three, three weeks of modified voice use. And in singers, that's when we start to introduce vocalizes and scales and gentle singing again. And usually, I mean, depending on the demand of the vocalist, we'll have them back on, they could potentially be back on stage in three months, maybe Mm -hmm. a little sooner, depending on the process. Um, But we guide them and help support them through that process so they're not overusing it and, and getting in trouble. Well, let's take a short musical break now and hear from three more vocal artists who combined surgery with therapy to get back on stage successfully. First up, we'll hear from Paul Stanley, the lead singer of the iconic metal band Kiss with Just a Boy. And then we'll hear Roger Daltrey from The Who with Who Are You? And then finally, opera singer Denise Graves will perform Yo Soy Maria.
This is Voicebox and I'm Chloe Veltman. I'm in the studio with voice speech pathologist Sarah Schneider and laryngologist Mark Corey and we're chatting about medical approaches to dealing with voice problems in professional singers and how experts advocate for a therapy-centric approach to overcoming issues, sometimes in combination with surgery, though only as a last resort. We just heard from three acclaimed vocal artists who underwent vocal surgery and rehab through therapy to continue their musical careers with success. Paul Stanley, the lead singer of KISS, Roger Daltrey, the Who's frontman, and opera star Denise Graves. For more detailed playlist information, please visit voicebox-media.org. Now, the prep and rehab process surrounding vocal surgery is an intricate and time-consuming thing. It requires diligence and patience, which is extremely challenging for professional singers who are used to having extremely busy schedules. So what happens if the therapeutic process surrounding the surgery is missing or inadequate or if surgery is undertaken too soon or too late. I'd like to turn our attention briefly to uh, a well-known couple of cases of famous vocalists whose surgical procedures weren't 100% successful, John Mayer and Julie Andrews. Mayer first underwent throat surgery for granuloma in the fall of 2011. He required a second surgery in March uh, the following year, causing him to cancel a planned US tour and all performances for an indefinite time. Sarah and Mark, first of all, what is granuloma? So a granuloma is a collection of inflammatory cells, cells that are produced in response to inflammation in the body. And in the larynx, they tend to form in the back portion of the larynx over the cartilage that controls vocal fold movement. What happens is people usually put their vocal folds together too aggressively in that area. They speak with a technique that squeezes the back half of their larynx too forcibly, and that causes the skin over the cartilage, which is very thin, to rub off. Mm. That allows Ooh. a sore to form. Mm. And then the ongoing uh, trauma from the voice use patterns allows that sore to become inflamed or red and swollen, and then the granuloma develops. Ah, okay. So what happened to Mayer that he needed to have two rounds of surgery? Is that common? Well, with granuloma, it can be a difficult behavior mm. to identify and then to get the patient to change. Mm. Once the patient can develop a pattern of speaking or of producing voice without the sensation of squeezing their larynx together, and sometimes patients can do it even with a subtle throat clear, with just the way they clench mm -hmm. their throat during non-vocal activities that sort of rubs things together. You know that sensation you get when you're going to clear your throat? Mm-hmm and you hold it there before you actually clear your throat, uh, that in <clears> itself, <throat> we call that laryngeal clenching. Mm -hmm. And some patients do mm. that habitually. Oh, uh, yeah, I can feel that when I, when I yeah. try now. I can feel it right, right. in my throat. And so, it feels hard there. Right, and you uh -huh. need to get the patient to be able to identify that sensation uh. and stop it. And once you do that, the granulomas mostly go away without mm. surgery. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my early mentors used to tell me, Mark, granulomas go away in nine months. And I thought he was crazy. <laughs> I, I, I really did. But I think once the patient gets it, they definitely go away without mm. surgery. Mm -hmm. And if the patient doesn't get it, it doesn't usually go away without surgery, but sometimes it does. You don't. And then you got someone like Mayer who didn't get it and didn't get it because he had it tw surgery twice. Right. Right. Huh. So there are other factors, too. Some people believe that reflux is a common problem mm. that causes granuloma, and it can be difficult, if not impossible, to mm. stop all reflux. Huh. Um, do you know if there's anything differently you would have done if you had been uh, looking after John Mayer? Uh, well, I think in, in our hands, he would have had therapy. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like he didn't, although I guess we don't really know all mm -hmm. the details. But um, as Mark was saying, we know that when Often, when people have therapy and can identify the behaviors and change them, mm. that's leading to the granuloma. It does go away. And so, yeah, I don't think of a granuloma as a surgical disease. Mm. Uh, I don't know the facts mm. in this one particular case. But to mm. me, a granuloma is really, unless it's beginning to obstruct the airway, it's not an indication for surgery. Interesting. And then Maya had it twice. Like the thing. Try my best 
You're listening to Voice Box with Chloe Valtman. Tonight I'm joined by laryngologist Mark Corey and voice speech pathologist Sarah Schneider for a discussion about how professional singers overcome voice problems using therapy, sometimes in combination with surgery. In addition to hearing this show on air, you can revisit it anytime via our free weekly podcast series on iTunes. Search for KALW Voice Box. And those podcasts are also available on our website at voicebox-media.org. That was John Mayer with Half of My Heart. Mayer underwent two rounds of vocal surgery in 2011-2012 to deal with granuloma on his vocal cords. Now, of course, no discussion of the challenges of vocal surgery in this country can be complete without touching upon the case of Julie Andrews. Mark and Sarah, what happens to Andrews? <laughs> I'll let you, you want to start. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know the specifics in that case, but what ended up happening after the surgery is that her vocal fold skin, the tissue that vibrates to produce voice, was obviously more stiff than it was before the mm. surgery and or it didn't vibrate efficiently mm. so her sound was much more rough yeah. and the range of her voice significantly limited because of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, if Andrews walked into UCSF today with her voice problem, what would you do to get her back on stage to achieve better results mm. now in this sort of post-surgery phase? Where I mean, so when somebody... So I, th- I think that Julie Andrews has scarring per... Right. Per report, um, so I, in the case of vocal fold scarring, there's not a lot of good treatment for mm-hmm. scarring, oh, okay. um, and s- surgically that, or behaviorally. That is the toughest problem we treat, and that's why surgery is always the last resort because you don't want the surgery to create more scarring, mm-hmm. and that's why we as laryngologists have to practice with talented behavioral clinicians who can get the patients to identify the behaviors that are creating the problems and get them to change them. Mm -hmm. And so scar, once it's on the vocal folds, there's research going on, Mm -hmm. but it's incredibly difficult to treat that, that particular point. problem. So there's, no, there's really nothing you could do for her at this point? So, so I would want to hear her voice and what mm-hmm. she can do with her voice, assess her range, and mm-hmm. I would, I mean, I would give it the college try. I would give her a bunch of exercises to work on stretching mm-hmm. the vocal folds and trying to build her range if mm-hmm. we can, work on maximizing how she's using her voice to um, see if we can get any, anything better. And the other thing is working with the patient to sort of say, What's within your limitations at this point? How do you use your voice differently and how can we help you to get the best voice and choose things that are going to fit how your voice is now? So scar tissue doesn't ever really go away then? So it can soften with time. And scar tissue softens over a period of one to two years. Mm. And what you want to do is give the vocal folds a healthy use pattern during that one to two years and then thereon to continue softening the scar tissue and having it remodel. You can try as a surgeon, you can try stretching or cutting some of the scar tissue out, some of the most Mm -hmm. dense scar tissue and hope it fills in with less dense scar tissue, but that's all experimental. And that doesn't usually get somebody back to a professional singing career. Mm, I see. Well, let's listen now to a couple of short clips featuring Julie Andrews' voice long before surgery and then long afterwards. First, we'll hear her perform My Favourite Things from the cast recording of The Sound of Music. And then we'll listen to a clip from 2010 where the singer performed My Funny Valentine live in a concert in London. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens brown paper packages tied up with strings these are a few of my favorite things cream colored ponies and crisp apple strudels doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings these are a few of my favorite things Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes Snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes Silver white winters that melt into springs These are a few of my Behold the way our fine-feathered friend Is virtue just gray Now notice not my dim-witted friend Picture thou hast made 
actually didn't sound so bad there. No, she didn't. She <laughs> sounded much better there than she <laughs> than did in I Prince's heard. Diaries. Yeah. What did I hear? Yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> You're tuned into Voicebox and I'm Chloe Veltman. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and at voicebox-media.org, where you can also find loads of great info about our series, including playlists and schedules. Tonight, I'm joined by laryngologist Mark Corey and voice speech pathologist Sarah Schneider for a chat about the vocal surgery and therapy for professional singers suffering from voice problems. We just heard two clips featuring Julie Andrews, a singer whose voice problems have been the focus of much media attention over the years. The second clip from 2010 of Andrews singing sounds much different to the first clip. Sarah and Mark, part of the quality of the voice in the second clip can probably be attributed to the fact that Andrews is no longer a young woman and voices naturally change as we age. But to what extent do you think the quality of her voice is the result of a a surgical procedure and therapy process that didn't go so well? Oh, that's a tough question, I think. So in the clip we just heard, her comeback clip, she actually sounded quite nice for someone given her age and Mm. given her vocal history. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of what I think we heard in that was lowering of pitch and Mm -hmm. slight roughness due to increased age. And Mm. some of the roughness then itself, which didn't come with age, probably came from the... Scarring, mm-hmm. due okay. either to the behavior that led to the surgery or the surgery itself. It's really hard to say. Hmm. Well, we're coming up on the end of tonight's show, alas. But before we go, um, we have a couple of loose ends to tie up. Now, I don't want to put you out of jobs, Mark and Sarah, but I think we need to talk about how professional singers can avoid having to pay a visit to you guys altogether. Would you be willing to share some tips on how to avoid getting voice problems in the first place? Listen to your body. Okay. <laughs> you know, sing sing within a range that's comfortable comfortable for your voice. Mm-hmm. Um, listen to your body. If you have pain or discomfort or strain, something's not quite right and you need to fix it. Mm-hmm. So, mean, those are the so, so the voice shouldn't hurt when you're done using it. Mm-hmm. If it does hurt, you've done too much in the style in which you're doing it. Mm-hmm. So just like Sarah said, listen to your body. Keep yourself well hydrated. Keep yourself on a good balanced diet, on a good sleep, sleep. schedule, mm-hmm. and on a good healthy vocal use schedule. Everything in moderation. Mm-hmm. Um, just the same, too, if if you are making your living with your voice, it's wonderful to have a vocal examination when you're in good health, when yeah. you're sounding well, so we know what your baseline is. Ah, okay, which is something that probably doesn't occur to most no. people. Yeah, and if you're in good voice and you're healthy and you come in and we know what you look like, then there's no panic, uh-huh. you know, if you come in and... You're not. Do you have do do uh, singers come and see you for that kind of baseline exam ever? Do you have some people mm-hmm. who do that? We do, but not as often as, as we would we'd like. like. Yeah. I huh. think that everybody who's a professionally professional. dependent on their voice yeah. should. should come in before they have problems. Ah, okay. It should be a part mm-hmm. of teacher education programs. Yeah. It should huh. be a part of, of music education programs, vocal music education. Okay, well, that's really sound advice, I think. Um, And lastly, is there any final thing that either or both of you would like to emphasize about your work with professional singers and the surgery versus therapy process in general? I think that one of the things that singers often come in scared of is we're going to change their sound Mm. in an effort to make them healthy, and that's not the goal. The goal Mm. is to help them meet their vocal demands in the with the biggest bang for their buck, mm-hmm. with minimal effort and and maximum output. And so we're not trying to give everybody clear as a bell voice, if that's, <laughs> or depending on what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. You know, we're trying to help them find the best voice for them. It's really challenging and fun and uh, uh, rewarding to work with this group of patients because mm-hmm. they take their voice seriously. Mm-hmm. And we're, we see patients who have moderate degrees of voice change, of hoarseness. Mm-hmm. They come in and they say, but it's not cancer, I'm happy. <laughs> and we're happy, they're happy, but ideally we want to give them the best voice they're capable of. Mm-hmm. That's what drives us as clinicians mm-hmm. in this field. And it's so nice because that's usually what the vocal professional, wants. the performer wants. Mm-hmm. So it, it allows us to practice our craft. Well, that's great. Thank you both, Sarah and Mark, for your wise words this evening. I learned a great deal from our conversation, and thanks for coming into the studio. It was fun. Thanks. 
This episode of Voicebox was generously underwritten by the American Speech Language Hearing Association, making effective communication a human right, accessible and achievable for all. Visit www.asha.org A-S-H-A.org, and enter Voice Disorders into the homepage search engine for more information. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. Sophia Vo is our development director. We need your support. Become part of Voicebox's inner circle of vocal music lovers by setting up an ongoing pledge for as little as $5 a month or give a one-time gift. Either way, donating to Voicebox is safe, easy and tax-deductible through our online PayPal link. Or send us a cheque in the mail. Write to us with any show ideas, comments or questions like where can I mail my cheque at info at voicebox-media.org. And please follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook. We love to hear from you. I'll play us out with a song that will make anyone who's thinking about having vocal surgery think twice about it and perhaps even try to avoid it completely by taking a therapeutic approach. Here's Weird Al Yankovic's spoof on a famous 1980s Madonna song, Like a Surgeon. Have a songful week.